Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. This month that Elliot Taylor tossed a baseball into the tool shed behind his house and something or someone tossed the baseball back. And it scared him, terrified him, and he ran back into the house. But the next night, he worked up as much courage, as much bravery as he could muster, and he grabbed a bag of Reese's Pieces to use as bait, and he lured the mystery creature from the shed out of the shed into his house, and that's when the world began to fall in love with E.T., the extraterrestrial. You know, it seems built in to us, to our imaginations and our, just our collective image of the universe. It seems built in to us to wonder if we're alone in the universe. It seems like we're always curious about whether life might exist on some distant planet or even in a galaxy far, far away. When Steven Spielberg released E.T. in 1982, he was only a few years removed from another extraterrestrial movie that he had directed, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, that you probably remember. And in 1982, the success of E.T. in theaters, at least temporarily, earned it the designation of the highest grossing film of all time, and the movie that it eclipsed was Star Wars, which, of course, is another film filled with imaginative beings from unexplored places in the universe. And I just figure since the very first humans looked up and noticed that the planets moved and noticed comets and meteors and moons, we've been wondering if there's anybody out there. And it's not just a question that we ask in our imagination or in movies. It's also a question that we're asking with science. I remember seeing news stories about 19 months ago about the collapse of the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. And this was a 1,000-foot diameter radio telescope. I keep wanting to call them satellite dishes, and they're not that. It's a radio telescope built into a, the crevasse that was left from a sinkhole in Puerto Rico. And as I researched more about that, I came to find out that there are over a hundred of these large radio telescopes all over the globe. This was one of the largest ones, but over a hundred of these radio telescopes that are pointing out into space. And these are not the kind of telescopes that allow us to look with our eyes and see into space. They're the kind of telescopes that allow us to listen in, that allow us to receive and pay attention to the radio waves and the micro ways that are being emitted by astronomical objects hundreds of light years away. These, there, are, there are these low-powered radio waves that are coming from planets and stars and galaxies and nebulas all over the universe, and scientists are able to use these radio telescopes to receive and decipher the source of those energy waves. But in addition to picking up signals from inert energy sources, like we've been talking about, scientists are always also looking for any kind of abnormality in the signals 
They're looking for something less random, something more intentional. Scientists are using the world's largest radio telescopes to search for signs of intelligent life out there. And if only they could just put some Reese's Pieces out, they might have a little better luck attracting that. I don't know, you know, but this search is more complicated. In fact, finding a needle in a haystack would be easy compared to the challenges of trying to listen for just the right signal at just the right frequency to identify potential alien communications. And that's all assuming that the aliens are sophisticated enough to be generating radio waves in the first place. Of course, some scientists aren't content to just sit around and wait on the signal to come to us. And so some of them are working on the next generation of space probes and vehicles that will be capable of traveling faster than we've ever dreamed of traveling before and exploring other solar systems and looking for indications of intelligent life in those faraway places. And believe me, I know that you didn't come to church today to learn about aliens, but I want to ask you this morning to reflect on the amount of energy and effort, the amount of infrastructure and engineering the total of the investments and the dedication that humanity is devoting and has devoted to the search for extraterrestrial life. Many of these hundreds of radio telescopes around the world are being utilized extensively by scientists whose aim is to search for signals that might be emitted intentionally or unintentionally by our intergalactic neighbors. And they're beaming messages into space too imagining that there might be somebody out there who might receive that transmission and might somehow be able to decipher and decode that encoded message. And so millions, billions of dollars worth of equipment, years of professional dedication and education, and thousands upon thousands of hours of paid and volunteer labor are chasing after connection with beings that we don't know to exist. And I just wonder, I just wonder if some people feel like the practice of Christian prayer is almost the same experience. I wonder, in fact, I wonder if some of you have ever felt like prayer seems like trying to communicate with aliens. Here's what I mean. I think that for some people, the concept of prayer feels about the same as beaming encoded messages off into the void of space, hoping, hoping on a long shot, I mean, living on a prayer, that there might be someone out there capable and interested and willing to receive and act upon the message we transmitted. Some of us think of prayer as this project that we're engaging in where we're trying to get the word out to somebody that we can't see, hear from, and we don't know if they ever hear it. I have a friend from high school who's a pretty outspoken atheist, and he and I keep in touch with each other by social media. He would tell you that when he thinks of Christians praying, he thinks we might as well be shouting into a cave because he's convinced that there's nobody on the other end there to receive that message. What my unbelieving friend does believe is that the persistence and the presence of extremely evil behavior in our world, like oppression and abuse and slavery, he thinks that that proves that there must not be anybody out there listening who cares 
And so he says he doesn't pray because he doesn't want to waste his breath. He doesn't want to waste his time. He doesn't want to waste his energy. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who feel just like he does about prayer. But I also know that there are a lot of other people, including many Christian people, who believe there is somebody out there, there is somebody to connect with, there is somebody who cares, but they still find prayer to be challenging. I think there's a lot of Christian people who find prayer to be extremely difficult. And I know from personal experience that prayer can be extremely challenging. I mean, you think about these astronomers who are operating these telescopes and how they spend a lifetime learning to fine-tune this specialized precision equipment and being educated for all of the data interpretation and collection that will need to happen. And then there are times when they can go years or even an entire career without finding anything significant, anything notable in their research. And for many of us, prayer feels like that, like it takes a lot of investment it takes vulnerability, it takes dedication, it's demanding, but on top of all of that effort that you can put into it, you can have a hard time figuring out if it's making any difference. And I want to tell you this morning that in all of Christian history, in all of these thousands of years that people have been having connection and communication with God, there's never been anybody who took prayer seriously who could say it was easy. There's never been anybody who was serious about prayer who said that was an easy project. In fact, you could fill a great library with the writings of people who have described the challenges and the struggles of their personal prayer life. But I'm convinced that virtually every human approaches prayer initially, at least initially, with expectations and approaches to it that get in the way. I'm, I'm convinced that every one of us, as we naturally come to the project and the task of prayer, we come to that at the beginning with some assumptions about prayer that make prayer feel mechanical and make it feel powerless and make it feel like something intimidating. Much of the time we're firing off as if sending messages into the void of space. We're firing off our messages to God in the form of our requests, and then we judge the success or the failure of that endeavor based on whether our requests are granted. And if we're honest with ourselves, we sometimes feel a little bit conflicted about the requests that we're asking for in the first place. But over, the, over time, over the centuries of this history when people have been walking with God, many of the followers of Jesus have discovered an avenue for prayer that feels more fruitful. Many of the followers of Jesus have discovered a procedure, a process for prayer that feels less stressful. And I'm here to tell you, it's not because these people who discovered this avenue were all spiritual masters. It's not, all, it's not because they were all just masters of self-discipline or because they were spiritual prodigies or because they had attained some level of intellectual enormity. In fact, the Christians who seem to have the most, critic, the most crucial prayer lives, the Christians who seem to have the most vital prayer lives will tell you that they stumbled and fumbled their way into it. But for every one of them, their success and the fulfillment that they found in prayer began by listening. 
And it began by listening to the words of Jesus and specifically the words that Jesus has to say about how to pray. In fact, there's a teaching from Jesus found in Matthew chapter six, where Jesus addresses our expectations and our approach to prayer. And I'm convinced that if we could enact just these couple of guidelines and principles that Jesus taught about prayer, I'm convinced we could have a depth to our prayer life that is out of this world. And so this morning, if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to join me. Turn on your Bible and and find your way to the book of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament portion of your Bible. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter six. But you need to know this going in, you need to know that the book of Matthew is an eyewitness account of Jesus's ministry written by a person named Matthew who was in Jesus's inner circle of followers. All right, that's what we're holding. This is a writing from somebody who was up close and personal to the ministry years in Jesus's earthly life. And Matthew chapters five, six, and seven, this is kind of an aside to the sermon, but it's really valuable for your spiritual walk. So make sure you don't miss this part. Matthew chapters five, six, and seven, These are some of the most important chapters in all of the Bible for people who want to be followers of Jesus, because this is the section of the Bible, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You could read it in 10 minutes or less, but this is the section of the Bible where Jesus explains his vision for the lives of his followers. I mean, you understand, you already know this. It's no big surprise. This book, this whole library of books, like this can be complicated, right? There's some complicated, confusing stuff in here. There are parts of this, the writings in here that don't apply to us. There are parts of the writings in here that never applied to us. There are parts of the writings in here that don't apply the same way today as they did when they were originally written. But Matthew chapters five, six, and seven, that's like our expanded mission statement. I mean, this is our foundation. It's part of our home base. And this is where Jesus tells the world what his followers ought to be all about. So when we get to chapter six, verse five, Jesus starts a sentence with these three words. He's speaking to people who want to be his disciples. And Jesus says, when you pray. Now we're going to stop there. Don't read ahead yet. But I want to stop there and I want to point out the assumption that's built into these three words. Because when Jesus, speaking to his existing disciples and some potential followers, when Jesus says, when you pray, I mean, Jesus is assuming something, right? Like he, he's assuming that his followers will pray. And I'm sure that there's a lot of reasons for that. I'm sure part of the reason that Jesus assumed that is because of the society that he lived in. He lived in a heavily religious society. And maybe in that culture, maybe prayer was more culturally normative for people who lived in that time and that place. But I think the deeper reason, I think the real reason that Jesus used this phrase, when you pray, is because Jesus was trying to lay a foundation. He wanted his followers to follow his his example of prayer. And so he was laying this foundation that says prayer is something that the followers of Jesus do. It's not an optional thing. It's like part of our identity, part of who we are. But remember, virtually every one of us starts out doing this poorly. 
Virtually every one of us comes to prayer, the act of prayer, with a set of expectations and an approach that doesn't necessarily serve us well. And so Jesus, in this passage, lays the foundation for how to pray. So listen to what he says. He says, when you pray, don't be like hypocrites. Now, you know what a hypocrite is, right? You, you, know, you already have an opinion of hypocrites, right? We know a hypocrite is somebody who says one thing and then does something totally different. A hypocrite is somebody whose speech doesn't match their actions, and we hate that. Like, it drives us crazy when somebody lies to us, misrepresents themselves, when somebody pulls the wool over our eyes. We hate it when somebody lives a hypocritical lifestyle. And so for me, and I bet for you too, it's really encouraging, it's inspiring, it's relieving to hear a spiritual leader make a statement like Jesus has made right here. Because Jesus obviously realizes that some people use religion as a tool to impress other people, excuse me, and to achieve status, but aren't ever changed internally by the experience. Like Jesus understands that hypocrites pray too, and that it's not making a big difference in their heart. It's not doing anything inside of them. Jesus understands that for some people, religion can be a tool for manipulation and not for transformation. And so Jesus says, when you pray, don't be the kind of person who says one thing and does the other. When you pray, don't be like hypocrites, he says. And then he goes on. He says, they love to pray standing in the synagogue. Now, this is essentially their church arena. It's their church setting. It's the place where they have religious gatherings together. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners so that people will see them. This is what Jesus is pointing out. He says, these are the kind of people who pray with this goal, this instinct that they want to be seen praying. And Jesus, you can imagine him just leaning in and he says, I'm telling you what, I'll tell you for sure that recognition, that being seen is the only reward that those people will get. That's the only thing good that's happening for them in that experience is that they're being seen and they're impressing somebody else. And I'm sure everybody in Jesus's audience and probably everybody in today's audience could envision what Jesus was talking about. Jesus is calling out people who claim to be talking to God but in reality, they're always looking out the side and the peripheral vision because they want to know if everybody else can see that they're talking to God. They want to be noticed talking to God. In reality, God is not their audience. Their audience is the people who are impressed that they are talking to God. And Jesus is talking about an expectation that some of us bring to prayer with us. It's an assumption that some of us bring to prayer, and it goes like this. It is normal, it is natural, it's instinctive to assume that prayer is a religious ritual meant to get God's attention. This is what we naturally believe. This is what we naturally assume, that prayer is what we do to get God to look over here. That this is what we do to get God to give us a few minutes of his time that we try to get God to actually listen in to the problems we're having. It's instinctive for us to believe that prayer is how we make contact 
that prayer is the way we reach out to God. And you know, you know that in every religious system in the world, the people who can make contact with God, the people who can connect with God, those are the people who have all the power in the system, right? The people who can be the ones to connect with God can tell everybody else what God said. And those people have the power in the system. But in this passage, in these verses, and especially in the next verse, Jesus is doing what Jesus does so often and does so well, and he's turning the whole thing upside down. He's turning our expectations upside down. And so in verse five, he says, don't be like those hypocrites. Don't be like the people who pray so that they can be seen, because that's all the reward they're gonna get. And then he moves on. He says, I wanna point you in a different direction. I want my followers to do something different. In verse six, he says, when you pray, when you, followers of mine, when you pray, go to your room, he says. Go to your room and shut the door. And it's hard to overstate what a significant, weighty command that is. Because he's talking to a bunch of people who have been taught their entire lives that God's presence is in Jerusalem. And if you want to be around God, if you want to connect with God, you make a pilgrimage and you go down there and you take your sacrifices, you bring your offerings, you purify yourself, you prepare ahead of time, you do all of these steps so that you can get down there and have an audience with the people who have an audience with God. But Jesus says, no, 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 it's different. Jesus is turning the whole thing upside down. He says, if you want to connect with God, if you want to talk to your heavenly father, you don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to go through the priest. Jesus says, go to your room and shut the door. Go to your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is, Jesus says, your father is present in that secret place. And your father, listen to this, your father who sees what you do in secret that part's kind of scary to us, right? That part we like to gloss over. Your father who sees what you do in secret will reward you because you didn't go pray to be seen by other people. You brought yourself to God. And there's so much, so much honesty that happens between you and God when it's just the two of you, right? So much, such a different conversation for me to pray to God by myself than to pray to God in front of a, a hundred people. You know, it's such a different conversation. It's so much more vulnerable, so much more true when it's just me and God. And Jesus says, you can do this. Jesus says, prayer is available to you like this. Go to your room, shut the door, and your heavenly Father will be there. And Jesus is casting this new vision He's casting a new vision for what meaningful, effective prayer looks like. Jesus is telling us that prayer that impresses God looks like this. And part of what he's saying is the location matters. You know, when they erect one of these big radio telescopes, and I showed you some pictures of what some of these telescopes look like, when they plan that they're gonna build a new one of those, they, they never put it in downtown Fort Worth they never put it in some major metropolitan area. In fact, some of you may be aware that Texas has one of these radio telescopes and it's way out in the Davis Mountains. I mean, you gotta go west and then go west from there, right? Like you just gotta keep on going until you're almost going east, going all the way around, you know? I mean, it's way out there, nothing close to it. 
Way out in West Texas, there's one of these, and, the, and there's hundreds of these telescopes all over the world. Antarctica has two of these radio telescopes. Every other continent has at least 10, but they never put these things in a city. They never put them in the, in the metropolitan area. They put them out in the wilderness or in the forest. They put them up in the mountains. They put them in the tundra. They put them on plateaus far away from population centers. And it's not because the equipment is so dangerous to people. The reason they put these antennas so far out is because the radio wave and activity that's being created in the metropolitan areas messes with the antenna. It's because the radio activity that's happening where all the people are, where all the cell phone towers are, where all the television stations are, that interferes with the signal that the, that the equipment is trying to pick up. The radio antennas, the, the telescopes, they can't pick up the signals they're trying to hear because it all gets drowned out. There's so much conflicting signal creating distractions and the telescopes can't do what they're intended to do. And so they're always isolated. In fact, <clears throat> ever, since, ever since in January of 2019, ever since China made the first landing of a spacecraft on the far side of the moon, this was, you may have missed this news story, but this was a big deal. I mean, two and a half, three years ago, China did, made the first ever landing on the far side of the moon where nobody had ever landed before. And ever since then, scientists have been dreaming of putting a telescope on the far side of the moon where there would be less human radio interference. They're trying to reduce the interference. And Jesus is telling us that the location for our prayer life matters. And it's not because it can't happen with other people around. It's because we have to deal with the interference that gets in the way of our prayer life. And we've all got some. We've all got interference that messes with our prayers, right? I mean, we've all got to try to live up to the expectations of other people. We're all trying to impress other people. But we also all live in a hurry. I mean, it's life in the fast lane. And we live with so many distractions, some that are imparted to us and some that we put on ourselves. And we all have these big appetites of what we're trying to do with our lives and everything we're trying to accomplish. And we know we have a limited number of years and we want these years to be meaningful and we want to find ways to you know, be with the people we love. But Jesus is inviting us to something here. Jesus is inviting us to something that not everybody will pick up on. In fact, there's going to be people in the room today, people who are listening to this message who won't pick up on what Jesus is inviting us to do, but Jesus is inviting us to quiet. Jesus is inviting us to stillness. Jesus is inviting us to solitude, and he's promising that in the solitude and the silence, away from the interference, we will find that God is already there waiting for us. We'll find that we don't have to vie for God's attention. We will discover that God has been there the whole time. Jesus is telling us in this passage that prayer is not the tool that we use to get God's attention. The truth is prayer is the way we turn our attention to God. 
Prayer is like us tuning that big dish, that big receiver, the radio telescope towards God and giving God a chance to speak to us away from all the rest of the interference. And we're not the ones who initiate the call. We're not the ones who dial God's number. We're just showing up to hear what's already being spoken to us. Jesus says, go to your room, close your door, and you'll discover that your heavenly father is present with you in the secret, in the quiet, waiting for you, ready to connect with you. Which brings us to the second of these two guidelines that Jesus has for us regarding prayer. Here's what he says, chapter six, verse seven. Jesus says, again, when you pray, all right, this is the expectation, the foundation he's laying for us. When you pray, he says, don't pour out a flood of empty words as the Gentiles do. And when he talks about Gentiles, he's talking about people who are followers of pagan religions, idolatrous religions that were popular in Rome and Greece and in the areas surrounding Israel. He's talking about people who went to great lengths in their worship to reach some sort of ecstasy so that they could reach into some other mental level of awareness and cognition. People who would mutilate themselves to try to convince the gods that they were serious about their devotion and their connection. He's talking about people who are utilizing every tool at their disposal, every word that they can think of to impress the divine of, with their piety. And Jesus says, don't, don't do that. Don't pour out a flood of empty words as the Gentiles do. They think that by saying so many words, they'll be heard. They think that the key that unlocks the lock is to say the right combination, the right volume, the right tenor, the right pitch. They feel like the way to get God's attention is to solve the code, to meet the system, to live up to all of the expectations so that God will finally turn God's attention towards us. And I think this is the most natural thing in the world to assume. That's so totally natural for us to assume that if God's going to pay attention and give us God's interest, that it will begin with us doing the work of figuring out all the right buttons to push. You see, when you approach prayer with the expectation that you've got to earn God's attention and you've got to convince God to take an interest in you, when you see prayer as this ritual that's got to be performed and perfected in order to be effective, it's perfectly normal to think that your presentation is what makes prayer work. But once again, Jesus is saying, when you pray, do it different. Jesus is inviting us to see the world differently, to turn the world upside down. Jesus is inviting us to see it through a different perspective and to change our approach and our assumptions about God. And so here's what Jesus says. Rather than being like those people who are trying to figure out how to push all the right buttons and say the right words, Jesus says, don't be like them. Don't be like the Gentiles because, he says, your father knows what you need before you ask. Y'all, 
I mean, this is Jesus telling us something about God that would never come to us intuitively, but it just makes so much sense that if we have a father, not just a God out there, but a heavenly father, doesn't the father pay attention to what the children need? Jesus says your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask. And what Jesus is saying here is you don't have to tell God anything. You don't have to explain to God anything. You don't have to reveal to God anything because there's nothing on your mind and there's nothing in your heart that God's not already aware of. There's nothing on your project list. There's nothing in your budget. There's nothing on your list of worries or concerns or fears that God is not already well aware of. And your approach to prayer matters. Because if you think that prayer is how you send out the signal and the messages and the requests to tell God what to do, then you've missed out on the entire purpose. Because God already knows all that. God knows what you need. You don't have to tell God the solutions to your problems that you need him to make happen, right? I mean, like, it, we do this all the time. God, I really need this offer to come through. God, I really need for this to show up. God, I really need for them to say yes. God, I really, like, as if God doesn't know what you really need better than you do. We so often want to go in prayer and tell God what it is that we need, the solutions to the problems that we're dealing with that we want him to empower. But instead, prayer is not supposed to be the place where we go tell God what we need God to do. Prayer is the way we let God tell us what to do. Prayer is where we go to God and say, God, you know everything about me already. You know my fears and my failures. You know my strengths and my capabilities and talents because you created those. You know my resources. You know my deficiencies. You know my family, my crazy family. You know, you know all the stuff I'm dealing with. You know the, po the possibilities that I've been staying up late at night worrying about. You know, God, you know what I can do and what I can't do. You know about how, what level of courage and faith I have. You know everything about me, God. So knowing all of that, what would you have me do today? This prayer process, this prayer avenue is not meant to be the place where we go and tell God what we need God to do. It's meant to be the place where we go and say, God, what do you need me to do? God, what do you want from me? You know, it's been said, famous quote, somebody said, 90% of life is showing up. And I gotta tell you, I'm becoming increasingly convinced that 100% of the life of prayer is really just about showing up that 100% of what it means to have a meaningful connection with God through prayer is about showing up and just being with God. This is why Jesus says, go to your room and close the door and you'll find that God is already there. 
I'm convinced that more and more prayer is about not telling God something, but it's about being available to God. It's about making ourselves receptive to God. It's about pointing the large dish of our telescope toward God and saying, you send the signal, God, knowing everything you know about me, send the signal and tell me what it is that you want from me. And as we work our way through this series that we've called Vivid, and we're talking about how to discern what God's up to in our lives, I want to tell you that this process of prayer, it's critical. This is vital to what we do. We have to be people who spend time with God, but I want to tell you that it doesn't have to be hard. In fact, as I thought about my goal for this message as I thought about what I hoped this message would accomplish, <clears throat> I thought about you. If you're the kind of person who thinks you're not very good at prayer, if that's you, and I'm not going to make you identify yourself or raise your hand or anything like that, I just want to talk to you for a second. If you're the kind of person who thinks I'm not very good at prayer, if you're the kind of person who looks around in a room like this and thinks, boy, a lot of these people must be really good at prayer. If you're the kind of person who looks at people that are on stage with microphones and you think to yourself, I bet they're really good at prayer. If you're the kind of person for whom it would be terrifying to be asked to pray in front of some other people in a circle of a small group, I want to talk to you for just a second. Because I want you to know that what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's lowering the access requirements to God. That Jesus is saying, you can pray too. And it's not about knowing all the right words. And it's not about getting the whole procedure and process right. In fact, I'm convinced that if we were to tune our telescopes toward God in prayer, the words we would have to say could be as easy as this. God, what's next? You don't have to be a brilliant theologian. You don't have to be a studied academic. You don't have to be a spiritual master or a guru or a mystic. You don't have to be somebody with a whole lot of spiritual background and experience because believe you me, the people Jesus was talking to did not have those credentials. And that's why they were so surprised. That's why Matthew wrote it down when Jesus said, you wanna have a connection with your heavenly father? You wanna have a prayer life that means something? Go to your room and close the door and don't say much and just listen. <clears throat>